This is the new Criterion. I'm James Panero, Executive Editor. In the month of February 2018, the most-read article at newcriterion.com was Puttin' on the Style by Dominic Green, a feature on writing and on English style. Now, I should preface this statement by disclaiming that reader metrics mean very little to us here at New Criterion. Every essay we publish is a diamond of equal weight, clarity, color, and cut. But online numbers can tell us a bit about which articles have a certain eye-catching sparkle, and my guest today is the one who turned his coal into a gem of particular brilliance. This all goes to say, Dominic Green, welcome. Thank you, James. Dominic Green is a writer living in Boston, quote-unquote. That's all our byline says for you, Dom. I will add that you have been writing from the New Criterion since February 2015. Yet you have already written some 25 essays for print and even more for us online. In fact, in the past year, I would wager that you have taken up more column inches in the New Criterion than any other writer. So just who is this writer living in Boston named Dominic Green? Well, I do live in Boston. I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is a parallel universe in many ways. Uh, as you can probably tell um, from my speech impediment, um, I was um, born in Britain and uh, grew up in London. And I've been in the United States uh, for 12 years, uh, so it's probably too late to go back. Well, I, I especially appreciate this writer living in Boston coming to New York to be with us today as we look out on another snowstorm bearing down on 20th Street and Broadway. I'm also grateful that Dom has offered to read an excerpt for us from Putting on the Style. So this is Dominic Green reading Putting on the Style from the February 2018 issue of The New Criterion. English is in an age of decline. English is in an age of vigour. No language, not even Latin, when it was lingua franca, has attained the full spectrum dominance of global English. Meanwhile, in the home territories, the quality of written English has declined as its quantity has increased. In expression, the hierarchies of formality are flattened rather than reinforced. Grammar, once the benchmark of basic literacy, is now a luxury. In spelling, the prizes go to texted acronyms. K-W-I-M? I learnt... English grammar in the 1970s at Beechwood Park Preparatory School for Boys. If the English teachers of Beechwood Park were able to work around the background checks and gain admittance to the liberal arts colleges where I've been teaching, they would run screaming into the ornamental lake. Many of my students cannot write a legible joined-up hand. Many struggle to assemble a two-clause sentence without fumbling the grammar. They have trouble spelling I before E, except after C. They know that there are differences between formal and informal communication, but why should they care? Here are some of my souvenirs from a famous and very expensive liberal arts college near Boston. History repeats itself over and over again from time to time. In the Middle Ages was when in Greece and Rome there was a rise in the interest of the science field of study. 
America was doing nothing to even try to stop any one of these countries from gaining too much power. And it eventually bit them in the butt when June 7th, 1941 came around. In Dangerous Liaisons, Valmont makes a good job of being what we today would call an asshole. It is often argued that had the inelegance agencies and the Department of Defiance not failed to share the information about the attack on Pearl Harbor, more could have been done to prevent this epic tragedy. But should that have been the case, no doubt the face of history would have been greatly altered. The Nazis carried out the Holocaust through their work and concentration camps in which millions of people were murdered in gas tanks. During the war years, the comfort women weren't even treated as people. The Japanese considered them second-rate sex machines. I cling to the last example's correct use of the semicolon as a monk might have clung to his copy of Bede's ecclesiastical history when the Vikings sacked the abbey. Today, written English is at what the euphemists would call an inflection point. The 19th century ideal of a democratic mass culture is a bizarre historical dream. The 20th century empire of mid-cult is gone. The departments of English got the theoretical barbarians for whom they were waiting. Standards of literacy are declining, even though the tests are getting easier. Knowledge of a foreign language, even Spanish, is rare amongst those without immigrant parents. Young Americans, like Romans among the British tribes, struggle to understand the language of their servants. Digital communication has inflected written English in the way that the guillotine inflected Marie Antoinette's neck. It is not enough that the lawmakers of the old order lose their heads. The symbols of the age of linguistic chivalry must go too. For when quantity is all, quality is the enemy. English, unlike French, has no academy to protect its virtue. Market forces have done the job instead. The concentrations of class and power they create now threaten to undo the language. Meanwhile, the real language war goes on. This, as Kingsley Amis observed in his own King's English from 1997, is not between academic prescriptivists and descriptivists, but between guerrilla outfits of Burks and wankers. Here, Amos. Burks are careless, coarse, crass, gross, and of what anybody would agree is a lower social class than one's own. They speak in a slipshod way with dropped H's, intruded glottal stops, and many mistakes in grammar. Left to them, the English language would die of impurity, like late Latin. Wankers are prissy, fussy, priggish, prim, and of what they would probably misrepresent as a higher social class than one's own. They speak in an over-precise way with much pedantic insistence on letters not generally sounded, especially H's. Left to them, the language would die of purity, like medieval Latin. Now, professional writers are mercenaries in this battle. 
Sometimes you defend beauty from the Burkish horde. At other times only Burkish vigour can revive the wanker's languor. In this, professional writers are closer than they realise to ordinary writers, for whom valour is also the better part of discretion, and who always write with a reward in mind. The hierarchy of language reflects social hierarchy. On the first recording of Putin on the Style from 1925, the trained tenor Vernon Dahlhart pretends to be a hick. Two years later, Irving Berlin's Putin on the Ritz, in its original verse, satirises the upwardly aspirational style of black Harlemites. Today, BuzzFeed's inversion of value reflects the inversion of the romantic cult of youth into commercial youth culture. Change is inevitable. Some of the stylistic proscriptions in the first edition of Fowler's King's English are now prescriptions of good style. The issue is whether we accelerate or manage the process. The digitization of manners is separating the written long from the spoken parole. This is bad for literature and worse for social mobility and democracy. Dominic Green, thank you. Listeners may read the full article of Putting on the Style in the February 2018 issue of New Criterion, in print and online. Dom, what is to be done? Do we need an Oxford English Dictionary in every home? A nationwide crash course in diagramming sentence structure? An EMP attack on social media? Or simply more readers of New Criterion? Well, James, I've thought about this question from many different angles for many years, and I suspect that the only uh, full answer to this civilizational dilemma is, is that final question, which is the more subscribers to the new criterion. Um, in the meantime, I think uh, a revision of uh, educational principles uh, would help. People, uh, before they can express themselves, need to get a handle, as they say, on the basics, on the most simple requirements of uh, sentence construction. I don't necessarily know if diagramming helps. I, I know there is more than one way of doing it. Um, certainly also, some kind of reading facility in a foreign language is absolutely vital, I think, uh, for tuning up a person's ear as to what constitutes good and bad writing. Because much of this is subjective. You can have a common grammar with people, but very different ideas about what makes for good or bad writing. You have to trust your inner ear, and that ear must be trained. And I think a foreign language is a very, very good way of training it. Um, are you also a musician by training, or you have a musical background? I, I am a musician without training, actually. I, I come from a family of jazz musicians, and um, most of us have only a passing acquaintance uh, with the academies of music. Mm. Uh, we tended to learn in, uh, in public and on stage, which I can assure you is not the way to do it. <laughs> well, Dom, your facility as a writer for the new criterion has certainly been incredible, at one time, we even toyed with the idea of establishing a pseudonym for you so that you could appear twice in any given issue. Uh, we got a no from upper management on that one, so Anthony Daniels and Theodore Dowrymple will continue to be our only authors who share the same toothbrush. Uh, but what is next for you here? What do you have coming up? 
Currently, I'm completing a piece for the April issue, uh, a review of two shows in London, one of them uh, Charles I's art collection, uh, which is at the Royal Academy. As you know, he had some difficulties and lost his head in the 1640s. And when that happened, Oliver Cromwell sold off uh, one of the great collections. And when Charles II came back in in 1660, he did his best to buy it up. But of course, some of it was by then in the Louvre and wasn't leaving. Uh, so the Royal Academy have managed to pull together some 70% of this uh, astounding collection. And there's a, a related exhibition on at the Royal Collection, which is about Charles II as well. So um, all things willing, that'll be with you uh, early next week. I understand when you are not writing for us that you are finishing up a book. Is that right? Tell us a bit about it. Yes, the book is finishing me rather than I'm finishing the book. It's um, called The Religious Revolution, and it is a, um, I suppose, a spiritual history of the 19th century in art and politics. And uh, I'm in the final edits now. Dom, you are the guest of honor tonight at a dinner for the young friends of the new Criterion. What are you going to tell them? Well, I would like to talk about our current position which is, um, in some senses, a, a better one than we've been in for a while, which I believe we have passed the worst of the digital transition. And it is clear that the um, media are being sorted into uh, the real and the fake. And people who want serious, real writing know where to get it. And, and that many important um, institutions, including the New Criterion, have survived this, this epical change into a digital environment. Um, but I'm also, uh, we have to face uh, the, the fact that the, the large mid-cult, middle-class educated culture that we associate with the 20th century has been badly damaged by educational reforms and the shift towards a culture of entertainment rather than a culture of reflection. And that therefore uh, we must still be thinking about how to conserve uh, our cultural inheritances and how to cultivate a, a critical mass of, of concerned and engaged readers. Amen. You've been listening to the New Criterion podcast, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at newcriterion.com. I'm James Pinero. My guest today is Dominic Green. Dom's essay, Putting on the Style, appeared in the February 2018 issue of New Criterion. Dominic Green, thank you for joining us. Now, before the snow gets any deeper, let's head uptown for a cocktail. Good idea. <laughs>